Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello. Hello. Coming up on today's show, are we all a little bit too obsessed with food delivery apps? Plus, why celebrity catfights are total bullshit and the AFL women's photo that made waves around the country and then the world. But first, Zara, please do tell me, how was your week? I had a good week. I had a great week. Um, How many times do you reckon you respond to that question with, I had a good week? But I think it's always good and important to try and be positive and put a positive spin on life. Oh, honey. Have we been struggling? (laughs) No, I I just did have a good week. I have to say, though, ever since we did that segment on um, political correctness in comedy, my younger brother has sent me like an incessant amount of articles about Ricky Gervais because he has a massive crush on Ricky. And on Ricky, can you use those? <laughs> can you be on first name basis with sure. those people? And I, ever since then, have been reading these articles. I started watching Afterlife by Ricky Gervais. Love that series did, on Netflix. We did recommend it in the newsletter last week, mm-hmm. and I have finished it now. And I do have to say it is one of the most stirring television shows I've watched in a very long time. Like it's something that I hadn't – it was just so different to what I'd watched in a really long time. I can't believe how much I cry and laugh and cry and laugh when I watch that show. And also I feel very sorry for Mitch because I'll watch it and then I'll latch on to him hoping that he never dies because – it's all it's about very death. deep. Yeah, it's about a man. If you haven't seen it, uh, the main character's name is Tony, played by Ricky Gervais. He's written and directed this drama, and it's following his life after his wife lost her battle with breast cancer. Spoiler, kidding. That's the whole, <laughs> that is literally the you whole literally show. find that out within the first ten seconds. Um, what I did find interesting in the have you finished it yet? No, Mitch and I are halfway through, but we watch one a night, and yeah. it's really nice because there's only what like six episodes six or something, episodes and they're about twenty five to thirty minutes. I would very much recommend it as a watch it's interesting to me that throughout the show or throughout each episode there seems to be very pointed moments where he's very clearly trying to communicate a message based on maybe controversy that he has been embroiled in in the past and those parts are really interesting to pick up so I am looking forward for you to watch those episodes and for us to actually talk about that. Well, we're trying to savour it. I almost wish there was more, but there is such beauty in having a really short and sweet and succinct drama that doesn't stretch out beyond what it really should. Yeah. How was your week? I'm a sugar baby. I know you are. (laughs) Cashed up sugar baby. Yeah. I don't talk about it a lot on here, but I do a column every fortnight with news.com.au where I try out things from pop culture. And this week's column, which should be going live on the day that this episode airs or maybe this week I'll drop it in the Facebook group when it does but I'd been seeing all these uh, news articles about sugar babies and how sugar daddies and sugar babies are on the rise in Melbourne and in Australia in general so I thought you know what I'm going to sign up to a sugar baby website make my profile with photos of myself of course and have conversations with these men and see where it goes any money exchanged no of course not I'm not actually (laughs) going to be a sugar baby my mum was very concerned when I told her I had to post it on Facebook because I'm quite anxious that I'm going to see like someone that I know on there or maybe one of my friend's dads. It's very that vibe. Can you see other sugar babies? Yeah. Oh, you can. So it's not just sugar daddies that you see. You can see the other sugar babies. I think I'm able to see sugar babies who have set their settings to interested in women and men. Right. I'm not 100% sure on that. I'm still kind of working it out. It's been a really interesting experiment. You were with me yesterday Mm. when we were replying to some 
emails and I'll put some of the details in the story, but just a heads up for anyone interested, $3,000 for a date. I mean, I do have to wonder what that $3,000 entails. Oh, the works, I'm sure. (laughs) I also think so too. But what I found interesting is that the user experience of the website, and I know this is a very much by the by, was not particularly fancy. Like it's a very... uh, bare bones kind of situation this yeah website. there's no frills going on it is <laughs> the nuts and bolts of what you need People to get know what they're getting on there for yeah but yeah it's been a really interesting week so living as a sugar baby has been fun if i ever run out of cash i know what to do i know if the podcast flops should i be worried that you're gonna find another career no 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 what else i definitely don't re- recommend really signing up for that no. unless you're into that which go for it very interesting lifestyle i don't really have anything to recommend we've been working so flat out since you've gone freelance I can't believe the number of hours that we have spent just at our computers in different meetings, replying to emails. It's just been very frantic the last few weeks, which is amazing, but it's been a lot. No, it has been a lot and we're surviving it. Who would have thought? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have a cry quota for anyone who's interested. (laughs) We've introduced one of us can cry per day when it all gets too much or we get too stressed. You've hit the cry quota I actually don't think it should be once a day. I feel like that's an obscene amount of crying. I actually think it should be one. We each get a cry a week. Okay. And I've had mine. You've definitely had yours. You're done for this I week. Am. But Should we actually, though, <laughs> speaking of... Before you burst into tears? I don't think I'm anywhere close <laughs> to tears right now. We should get into the first segment because speaking of tears, I did nearly cry when I saw how much Brendan Favola spent on Uber Eats. Yeah. So this was announced on the Fifi, Fev and Byron morning breakfast show on Fox FM. I'm not sure if this is a national breakfast program or if it's just in Melbourne, but for those who missed it, Brendan Favola is a major AFL star or former AFL star in Australia. He has had quite an interesting story. He used to have a uh, gambling addiction. He had some alcohol and substance abuse problems. A very high profile affair. Very, Yeah. He was a bad boy who was then reformed and his narrative has been kind of like a fairy tale, I guess, in the Australian media landscape. But he did have a revelation this week on air, which I really want to talk to you about. He has spent in 18 months of having Uber Eats app on his phone $35,000 on takeaway food. When we read that, I remember we both looked at each other and we thought, okay, well, we actually need to crunch these numbers because how much is that? Like how much does that equal? I crunched it down. We worked it out. It was what? About 70 bucks a day. Yeah. So he's made 588 orders on the app. From 108 different restaurants, that equals 32 orders a month. So he must be ordering enough food for his whole family or something to be justifying that. I mean, it's an order a day, about 70 bucks a day. So you must be doing a big order for lots of people. And he has got, I think, four daughters. Unless you have a massive appetite, which I imagine old mate Brendan Favola does. And he's not even the biggest spender on Uber Eats in Australia. (laughs) He's in the top 0.02% of Uber Eats users. This is so interesting to me. And I know it seems like kind of a niche stat that we're reeling off here and and talking about its absurdity. But I do think there is an interesting sort of extrapolation we can do on the ease of sort of apps and payments these days. I know Carly Finlay, who we interviewed on the podcast a couple of months ago, it was Mm -hmm. a really um, interesting and brilliant interview from her, if you guys want to go back and listen to it, posted in our Facebook group this week a link to the story and she said, does the ease of a purchase make you spend more? 
And I wondered, and I sat with that thought for a little bit, and I thought it absolutely does. Mm. In a day and age where I can buy anything on my phone and I don't have to plug in any of my details, it's much easier. For example, when we were out at an event a couple of, last weekend, I think, and we got on a train and the train was going to be delayed by half an hour and I was in a rush and I thought either I can get out here and get in an Uber or I can stay on the train. I just got out and got in the Uber because it was so easy. And if that ease wasn't there, I don't think I would have done the same thing for a taxi. Yeah, I really think as well the visibility of money comes into this, that if you have the money in your hand and it's tangible and it's concrete and it's there, spending it feels different to when it's just a number on a phone. I feel like because money isn't really an object, like a physical object to us anywhere near as much as it has been across history anymore, we do spend with so much more ease. I totally agree with Carly Finlay on that. A little tidbit to this story, which I just find really interesting, is that Food delivery companies are not flourishing in Australia, although we all use them, really. Fedora went under last year. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Deliveroo is really struggling. And Menulog, which is the equal largest delivery service, along with Uber Eats, is not yet profitable. They're all really struggling to turn over a profit, which just makes the future of this industry really murky. I agree with that. And I wonder what a lot of millennials will actually do without these services at their beck and call. I do think there is something in the idea that we're now living in a culture of food more than we ever have before. According to an analysis of historical data, and this is US-based, but I think it says a lot across the board of food spending habits by the University of Arkansas, eating out has increased from 25.9% of consumers in 1970 to a record of 43.5%. So I think there is something about our propensity now to eat out and that sort of translated into our our want and our desire to have restaurant quality food at home. Yeah. So we got so used to eating out and then suddenly it could come to our door and we didn't want anything crappy now. We want good stuff. We just don't want to have to cook it ourselves. Yeah. And it's so weird because we are living so differently. Like both men and women are working so much more than they have across history. I do wonder, is it arrogant for our generation to say we simply don't have the time to cook anymore? Because that is a conversation that I have with lots of girlfriends. And it's something that I feel in myself that if I'm working I don't know, probably 50 plus hours a week at the moment. I don't then feel like I want to go home, go to the grocery shopping, prepare a full meal. It feels like the 30 minutes that I would spend cooking a meal could be so much better spent doing other things that fulfill me. So I do wonder if that's a sense of arrogance or whether it's just the reality that we don't have as much time to dedicate towards domestic things like this. If you get a joy from cooking, go for it. But lots of people don't. I actually don't know if it's a time thing and more of a priorities thing. Like we have options now. I feel like we do have as much time as we always have. Maybe we're just not using it as well. Like I don't even think we're working that much harder than my parents would have. I just think we have the option not to cook now. And now we have the option to sort of recalibrate our priorities and say, well, I do value that 30 minutes that I would have spent cooking, spending time with my family. Because we have that option, we're all choosing the same one. Yeah. And it's funny because the cost of living is going up, but the average wage isn't. So I do wonder what's appropriate, like in your opinion, how much should you be spending oh my God. on a food delivery app week to week? I have no idea. I mean, I think that's a hard question to ask because I think it's infused with, obviously, how much money you have. I mean, there is still a lot of privilege in talking about um, having the, the ability to spend $5 just to get food delivered. I I mean, I guess one meal a week. Is that a lot? Yeah, one to two. I yeah. feel like I would probably do a week and I think that's a good midpoint. I do love – I mean, I love Uber Eats. So I love do I. Deliveroo. So I don't want to hate on them because they're amazing. But $35,000 in 18 months, that's like a – that's half of a house deposit. Do you think it also comes down to sort of how we live in like this hyper-consumerist society where 
all we do is buy things. It's not just the ease of buying. It's just that we all buy all the time. I have this conversation with my mom all the time and she is always very shocked about how much me and my siblings buy in comparison to what she bought when she was much younger. Like I feel like we live in this far more materialistic, overly commercialized world where there is more pressure to buy full stop. Like there's more options to buy. Perhaps. I do feel like spending behavior is so symptomatic of how you grew up and the values that you were infused with from a young age. So maybe Brenda Favola grew up in a family where takeaway was a norm and maybe other people would look at that $35,000 amount and absolutely shudder. I have friends who don't have any food delivery apps on their phone because they didn't grow up with that kind of expectation that once a week there would be a treat at the end of it. I mean, it's so funny. We're recording this and talking about it. I know full well that I'm going to leave this recording, go home to Mitch, and we're going to order food tonight. It's like our once a week thing. It's nice. It's a really nice practice at home with other people. I think in that sense, it can be quite mindful in keeping you at home and not keeping you scattered. It's almost like a self-care ritual. I think in 2019, it's absolutely a self-care ritual in that on the weekend, if you don't want to do anything, you say to your friends or your mom or your dad or your boyfriend, I want to sit at home and have Uber Eats. Yes, it's so true. Which is hard um, because it means we're just spending more. And if we want to spend more, I mean, power to all of us if we if that's what we want to spend our money on. I just do I do think it comes down to priorities. And when it comes to money, people have different priorities on what they want to spend with. I mean, we mm. have different money priorities at the moment. We speak about that a lot. Mm. You are saving to buy long-term house. Yeah, Mitch and I want to buy our first home and by home I mean shoebox apartment because God knows we will not be able to afford a home. And I want to travel at the moment. Like that's what I want to spend my money on. So people do have different priorities when it comes to money and I think it's very easy to sort of project judgment onto how people spend. Although I have to say 35 grand on Uber Eats (laughs) is a bit excessive. Wow, that was a whole lot of cognitive dissonance going on there. Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we will bring you five stories from the rough, rough and, and tumble. tumble. All right. <laughs> rough and tumble. Do you know what? I actually wrote that line into the very first episode that we were uh, scripted and we've never got rid of it. Hmm. Anyway, rough and tumble of the new cycle. <laughs> Michelle, you are kicking it off today. What have you got for us? I am. Before I say anything, if you do not want a Married at First Sight spoiler, skip ahead probably 90 seconds and I'll try and get the spoilers out of the way as soon as possible and then we won't mention the names again. Okay, deep breath. Married at First Sight, spoiler alert. Bombshell photos reveal the three couples still together at the reunion. As it's confirmed, Jessica Power and Daniel Webb are allowed to stay in the experiment. That is from the Daily Mail. You have about 50 seconds to explain this. Okay, great. So what happened was there is a reunion special that has been filmed months after the season wrapped this week. So the Daily Mail had paps there and looked at which couples went in together to this reunion special and which arrived separately in separate cars, which says a lot about whether or not they're still together. So I'll rattle these off. Heidi and Mike apparently have split. Ning and Mark have split. Dan and Jess are still together. Jules and Cam are still together. And Martha and Michael are still together. Okay, no more mentions of names for anyone who skipped ahead, Zara. I think you did that in a good amount of time. Great. All of that was French to me because I'm not a married at first sight watcher. It is interesting to me that Daily Mail has managed to spoil another reality TV finale. Do you mm. think there is still appetite for these spoilers? Like, do you think people oh, yeah. care? God, yes. They keep doing it. I know it's a big risk to their PR and how much people actually love the Daily Mail because if you get a spoiler that you didn't want, it can cause so much resentment and hatred towards that one publication. But it clearly pays off for Daily Mail. It must work for them that they can put these out and they get such clicks and so much 
so much traction that they want to keep doing them. Well, the traffic would be huge for sure. I mean, I don't know much about this story, but is the contents of it is much of a surprise? Like, is that why the story is interesting? Yes, absolutely. I think they've probably had more success. If the Daily Mail is correct, then it would mean that this season is the most successful or one of the most successful of what they've done. Interesting. My second story. Glammed up, Paris Jackson hits the red carpet just days after suicide attempt reports. That is from news.com.au. We touched on um, our concern for the welfare of the Jackson kids in our Leaving Neverland segment a couple of weeks ago. It is really bizarre to me that whether or not there was a suicide attempt in this kind of circumstance that we are reporting on it, Mm. that that the media is feeling the need to speculate because they are just reports. Like she is coming out and denying it. And I Mm. think that's the only thing that matters. It's, It's just crazy to me that there's no sense of ethics around this story. Yeah, and it, she's not the first person who has had a rumoured suicide attempt, even back here in Australia where that's been covered really quickly by the media. I just think there's a lot that we need to take into account when it comes to people's mental fragility. Well, I think it's actually the story where we should have blanket rules, and I know that people aren't just going to listen to this and enforce blanket rules, but I do think it's cut and dry. If it's a suicide report, then it shouldn't be reported on. Mm. If they are confirming it, then we can rep- report on it because they are clearly ready for the story to sort of hit the news mm. uh, the news cycle. But these reports just uh, really frustrate me. Well, the cost will so far outweigh the benefit. Like what's the benefit in the public knowing that someone may have attempted to take their life compared to the cost of that person? and then potentially taking their life because of the resulting, I don't know, attention, spotlight on them in that moment. It's just horrific. I really hope that in the future, I I hope that no one loses their life first and foremost because the media is paying so much attention to them in their most dire moment. And I hope that in the future we can move away from stories like that. Agreed. My third story, Game of Thrones actress Amelia Clarke reveals she suffered two life-threatening aneurysms. That's from ABC. Sorry, those are two very dark stories back to back. They are. This Amelia Clarke story at least has a thread of light through it. She wrote about her experience having two strokes in the New Yorker this week. Her, the piece was pretty harrowing. It's pretty long. Give yourself a little bit of time to scope through it because there's also a lot of detail about the brain aneurysms that she was experiencing and sort of uh, the detail around the surgeries and stuff like mm. that. It was beautifully written. Um, I I said to you as we were both reading it at the same time, I'm, I'm really surprised that this was able to be kept from the media. Either the media were really respectful about this and knew about it and decided it wasn't their story to tell or she was very good at hiding it. But regardless, two months in sort of an intensive care scenario Mm. um, after major brain surgery twice Mm. is a pretty incredible feat all the while filming one of the, if not the biggest television show in the world. I think as well the fear associated with having aphasia, which is where you your brain can't comprehend words or your words come out jumbled. How scary that would be when your job is an actress and you have to repeat lines. She said in that story that she couldn't believe what was coming out of her mouth. It just didn't make any sense, which is common after brain surgery. But it's also not guaranteed that that will always go back to normal. It took over a week for her speech to return to normal. So... I just really admire Amelia Clark for telling this story, but also I admire the fact that one journalist did approach her when she was in hospital with this brain aneurysm and asked her about her health and she denied that anything was going on. And I, I admire that in that moment she felt like she 
could lie to the media for her own benefit. Like, I don't feel like we should look negatively upon that because sometimes you have to protect yourself. Well, exactly, that she felt that she could put herself first. She does paint this really beautiful picture at the very start of the piece about how young and innocent she was at the time of filming Game of Thrones, that she was 24, she'd barely had a job in the industry. And I think when we see celebrities, we kind of have this weird assumption that they were always famous, that they were never normal at any point. And she does paint this really beautiful picture of being young and innocent and not understanding the industry of being terrified and then having these brain aneurysms at such a young age like that's our age right now Mm. um it's it's a beautiful but also really sad and also hopeful read i would very much recommend um anyone getting their hands on that to read it absolutely my fourth story the internet celebrates egg boy the teen who egged senator fraser anning that is from junkie at the time of recording, Eggboy has 635,000 Instagram followers. Wow. I thought his profile was taken down. Was it re-put up? It was put back up. I don't know what happened. I think maybe it might have been that Instagram flagged him because he had such crazy growth. I yeah. think they flagged him as either a bot or like a bit of a sketchy, weird account. But this was just crazy. The amount of... I don't know, support. Everyone just rallied around this teenager from Melbourne and just made him this superstar overnight. It's very much um, interesting to watch sort of the overlap between politics and pop culture in this kind of scenario and how meme culture very much infiltrated Australian parliament to the point where Eggboy became the most famous person in Australian politics, but also the most famous person on social media. And I always find the overlap between those two things really interesting when all of the worlds start colliding. Absolutely. What do you think, when when I posted this in our Facebook group, and that got lots of likes, I think it got like 500 likes in the Facebook group, I did have one DM from a listener who said, I'm disappointed in you that you supported a boy who exhibited violence to get his point across? I think it depends on how you consider egging. I think for a lot of people, and I would be included, the act of egging to me is not necessarily um, violent. The That's point of I egging said. is like to humiliate. Yes. Um, it's not a violent act. It is it, The point of it, like I said, is to humiliate. So for me, that kind of, you know, didn't bother me so much. I under- I did understand why some people would consider it a, a different act, but mm. that's my perspective. Especially on the scale of Fraser Anning basically inciting violence yeah. against Muslim communities. I think someone egging him on his bald head isn't the most serious act in the world. Exactly. I would egg him any day. My fifth and final story. You just want the followers to come with it. <laughs> <laughs> my fifth and final story. Gossip and Grit. How the, <laughs> how the Shameless Podcast became the voice of two generations. That's from The Guardian. I do want to preface, we don't call ourselves the voice of two generations. That, those are the words of the lovely writer of that article, Nicole Haddo. I cannot believe you put this in. This is very embarrassing. No, I just think it's good for us to discuss this um, Guardian profile because it was a big moment for the both of us. But also, I wouldn't call us the voice of two generations. That's very lovely for The Guardian to say that, but probably not true. <laughs> no, no, no. Most definitely not true. Um, anything else to say on this? No, Tell I want, I want your thoughts. I want your thoughts because how does it feel? Um, ah, oh, good question. We really haven't talked about this. No. Um, uh, overwhelming, I guess a little bit. Mm. Um, I have only quit my job in the last four weeks. I also think that there's a propensity for when we're posting about these kinds of things, like this article for everything to seem quite rosy and quite fun, but 
the ups- the other side to that is, I don't know, everything can be in a bit of an illusion. Like we've had a really hard couple of weeks too and I've had a particularly hard couple of weeks. I guess I just worry. I know this sounds so dumb, but I guess I just worry that people see things like this. And it is a classic Instagram illusion where you think mm. everybody is doing such amazing things that there's a lot of other stuff going on too and mm. things aren't always really rosy and really shiny. So it is nice to have stuff like that. But I guess because the nature of our work is so public and the wins are a bit more public, people don't see the losses as much. Yeah, and I think that's why I wanted to put it in this week because – yeah, it's amazing. Like being in The Guardian is incredible and having people acknowledge you is incredible, but not everything behind the scenes is always incredible. Yeah. And it's important, I think, to acknowledge that, yeah, you can have success in some areas, but there are also some pretty pretty low lows that come yeah. with stuff like this. And, of course, we are always grateful and so uh, blown away to be in the position that we're in, but it hasn't always been easy at all. Yeah. And I, but like I said, I do think it's it's just interesting to me when I look at my own social media profile or our own social media profiles. And it's so hard to not paint a very rosy picture yeah. on Instagram because it's very hard to communicate the other stuff. But I also think it's important that if we have the opportunity in front of these microphones, like right now, to flag that as well. Yeah. And I, for anyone who hasn't read this week's newsletter, Zara's always too humble to recommend her own thing. So I'll recommend oh. it. I do really love her column in this week's newsletter. It is about exactly what she just spoke about then that uh, being out of your comfort zone can be incredible, but it can also be terrifying. So I will put the link to subscribe to our newsletter if you do want to read that column and we'll resend it out to all the new subscribers to that when this episode goes live. That's all for the quick and dirty today. <laughs> Thank you for recommending me. That was very nice of you. No problem. Anytime. <laughs> In case you missed it, Meghan Markle and Priyanka Chopra, once firm friends, now supposedly hate each other's guts. You see, Meghan didn't attend Chopra's wedding last year, then Chopra skipped Meghan Markle's baby shower a few weeks ago, and in these silly, trashy, ridiculous stories emerged an all-too-familiar thread. One, that women like Chopra and Markle haven't just fallen out or drifted apart like many women do, that they must be having a cat fight. Zara, why is it that we struggle to talk about female conflict in 2019? I wish I had the answer to that because it's it's interesting for all our conversations and our discussions over decades about how women's conflict is often framed as a cat fight. I feel like we're no closer to reaching a point where that's fixed. Mm. For me, I just feel like there's such a difference in how we see male and female conflict I feel like female conflict is wrapped in this idea where it's inherently personal like if two women are falling out or having a disagreement that it is personal that there is like intense hurt and aggression involved it kind of reminds me this might come across weird um, and it'd be a really terrible metaphor or example, but let's I roll love it. how you're really like sitting back it. in your chair as well to just launch I'm into this. I'm nervous it's not going to come out very well. It kind of reminds me of this image of like a whole heap of people fighting at the gate before like a Boxing Day sale or something. Yeah. And there's a finite amount of items in the store and everybody's running and pushing and kicking each other out of the way in order to grab those items. To me, it feels like we frame female conflict in a similar way in that there's only so many spots for us in this world. And so the rest of us, in order to find those spots and that sense of legitimacy, are elbowing each other out of the way in order to find them or or get them. Mm. I don't think it's true at all, but it's kind of how we frame it. In comparison to that, I think we frame male conflict in this sort of very reasonable way, like men have reasonable disagreements, women have vicious fights. Yeah, men sort it out over a beer. 
Yeah, or if they don't, it's just a bit meh, oh well. Yeah, two men who are headstrong just going at it and being very rational and reasonable. I do want to give some facts about Chopra and Markle for those who missed it. So Priyanka Chopra had a wedding to one of the Jonas Brothers who I don't care to remember in December last year in India. Meghan Markle had a baby shower in February in New York. Neither woman attended either milestone event. But they had been friends for years. They've been friends for about four years now. They met in 2015 at an L Women in Television event. I do find it interesting even how much weight we put on women's milestones, and I put that in inverted commas, yeah. that we put so much weight and uh, meaning behind a woman's wedding or her baby shower as being the definition of uh, I don't know, an event that makes that woman. It feels very gendered, even that part. Like, can you imagine a male celebrity not attending another male celebrity's wedding and that being some major blow up? Wouldn't it just be put down to, I don't know, living in different countries, having busy careers, having different lifestyles, drifting apart? It wouldn't be framed as how dare she not attend I don't know, Priyanka Chopra's wedding. That must mean something huge. It's interesting that you say that. I actually haven't thought of it like that. And I don't know if I agree. Let me think through this <laughs> as we're talking. I know, I don't think that I agree. I think if if a man, let's say Matt Damon, didn't turn up to Chris Hemsworth's wedding, I mean, we would note it, but we wouldn't care. But that's because he's a man, not because he didn't turn up to the wedding. I think the optics of this are important. And I think both Meghan Markle or Meghan Markle, however we want to call her, and Priyanka Chopra would have known what it would have meant them not turning up to each other's weddings like they would have known that the stories would have come so there would have been a reason that they didn't turn up um and i think in a celeb a celebrity world like theirs turning up to these events and being visible and being a visible friend is actually kind of important to avoid sort of incessant tabloid gossip i the thing is right i think megan and priyanka have likely fallen out like i think that's probably happened I am interested in your thoughts on how much we're allowed to care about that because I do care and I think we're allowed to. It's just that we kind of disproportionately care about female breakups or female friendship breakups than male breakups and Mm -hmm. how much does our own sort of bias play into that? I think the thing – I think I agree, first of all, that we are allowed to care. I think what really irritates me and irks me about this story is that Meghan Markle being portrayed as – untrustworthy and unlikable is not just sanitized to her friendship with Priyanka Chopra. That is something that has been reiterated again and again and again by the likes of the Mirror, the New York Post and Daily Mail that she is supposedly in a never-ending catfight with Kate Middleton. So I think that's the thread that annoys me here, that the media, in my opinion, the tabloid media, will go to any length to define Meghan Markle and depict her as this unlikable person, which is annoying. I agree. I also find it desperately annoying that they do want to paint her as unlikable. And we could go into depth about why they do that. But for the sake of this discussion, I guess for me, I wonder if it's a chicken or egg scenario. Do we care about female friendships because we are female? So then the tabloid media reports on them more, uh, maybe because they skew to a more female base. Or do we care about them because the tabloid media paints female friendship breakups as more salacious? And so then we sort of jump on that bandwagon. I think it's maybe the second, but I don't think we should discount the former either. No, I agree. And after we worked in digital media for probably three years, by the end of it, we did see that stories about women falling out would always get traction and always get clicks because I am innately interested in other women's friendships and I am innately interested in other people's personal lives in general. And I wonder if my clicking habits are the same as a man's, my own age, what he's clicking on compared to me. Maybe I am skewing more towards celebrity stories, number one, but also stories about women and their lives, whether that's romantic relationships or platonic friendships. 
I think the issue with the catfight narrative is it's such a caricature of female aggressiveness and female bitchiness. And I think at its very core, it implies that women are constantly in competition with each other, right? So that we're constantly going to claw each other's eyes out to get the limelight or get Mm. to where we want to go, that we're at the heart of everything, that we're at a threat to each other. When we don't really depict men as threats to each other, women, it's almost like we use catfights as a tool of division that we want to pit women against one another because that holds us back as a collective group. Well, I do think it comes down to this idea of space, that there will never be enough space for a man. Like I feel like in this world a man can open his arms and use his wingspan and not touch anyone and that space is his and he can take it all up. Whereas women, I feel like, are kind of sardines in this world, pushed up against each other and told that we don't have the space to be how we want to be. And because of that, we end up, quote-unquote, catfighting. I'm not a Seinfeld uh, watcher hugely at all, but when I was doing my reading on this- Oh my God, did we read the same essay by Rachel Reinke? About this idea, this episode of um, Seinfeld, The Summer of George, did you read it too? Yes. This is so interesting to me. I'm glad we both find it interesting. You can very clearly see that Michelle and I don't talk about these segments before we start. So I thought I was special in finding this. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I talked to it first. It's okay, you get half of the credit too. So in, a, in an episode of Seinfeld called The Summer of George, Jerry put it like this, that it's generally this idea that men think that if women are grabbing and clawing at each other, there's a chance they might somehow, you know, kiss. That catfighting is like this weird male fantasy, almost about the male gaze, about claws and cat fights. And the more I think about it, it's like borderline pornographic, this idea. Is that the sense that you got from that essay too, that there is kind of layers of porn to this that I'd never thought of before. Yes, sexiness. And it's, it's interesting you bring that up because earlier this year, there were a lot of news articles circulating that, uh, the narrative of Kate and Megan or Megan fighting back and forth was actually a ruse to distract people from the fact that Harry and Will have had a major falling out, but no one would really care about Harry and Will, Will having a major falling out because nobody cares about men not getting along. It's sexier to see two women fighting. It kind of reminds me, and I don't know if I'm sort of jumping too far away from this, but this idea of like the two young girls kissing at the club for the male, the male gaze once again, um, it just all sort of plays into this same idea that we think that women are kind of like always jumping about fighting each other with pillowcases at sleepovers and cat fighting when we don't get along. When in reality, that's not how our friendships exist at all. Um, Clem Basto wrote for Daily Life in 2015. So this is a pretty old article, but she pointed to how insidiously these clashes are often framed by way of lip service to feminism as though all women should support each other and live in a fairyland named sisterhood where we sing Helen Reddy songs every night. So in these stories, more often than not, there'll be some kind of point to how both are feminists or one is a feminist and one isn't or Mm. whatever, that feminism somehow has a role to play in these sort of fights too. Mm. If anything, this was with Meghan Markle in particular, this was always going to be how it ended and the narrative that was pushed predominantly. There was a great story by Yomi Adegoke in The Guardian that said, all that was truly inevitable was the swiftness with which the press turned on her, furthering the fallacy that women cannot get along. It's so frustrating. And I think on a much more personal note, we have only had drippings of this, like tiny drippings, but it's certainly come up in our work together. 
um, which I have found very surprising. I think the most consistent comment we get about each other when we're together, whether we're people are maybe interviewing us or asking us questions about the podcast, it's this sense of awe that we tend to disagree with each other in a lot of the things that we're talking about. Like people are genuinely surprised that we disagree with each other. And that's not us over-exaggerating. Like that would be the most common comment we get. Mm, would you agree? Sure. Absolutely. It's that people can't quite believe that Zara and I are actually friends that we can still be kind to each other and not agree on everything that we do and I think sometimes particularly feedback that we've gotten recently is that perhaps that we're being rude to each other or we don't like each other is a thread definitely going on the Apple podcast reviews right now which is very hard firstly for you Zara because I feel like it's very harsh towards you a lot of the time and that's that's totally fine because this is I mean we do this job for a reason and we put our voices in front of microphones so you cannot possibly sit and front of a microphone and talk for an hour and expect that people are only going to be nice to you. And I don't think that we deserve that. Mm. But it was interesting um, that like even last night or the night before that I called you to talk about this. And I said to you, I don't know because my my sense of humor is quite sarcastic and we do rib each other. I'm is very, <laughs> I'm very dry. None and, of us knew that. <laughs> and we do rib each other a lot. And I remember saying to you, at what point do we dilute this a little bit? Because people don't get it and Mm. at what point do you kind of pivot how you function and your dynamic because people are uncomfortable with it and the last thing that I would want is for people to listen and be uncomfortable or expect that we don't like each other Mm. we love each other a lot (laughs) which is very awkward for me to say I'm just not very sentimental and of course there are two types of feedback one is very constructive and helpful and one's just toxic and that is a conversation that we always have with each other when we need to look at different types of feedback about our personalities about our broadcasting styles and decide what What's going to help the quality of the podcast Mm. and what actually just isn't helpful and is just kind of trolling. I think it will take us time to get used to that. And I kind of just take all of it on because I thought we can just be better. Mm. I don't know if that's healthy. I don't know if that's helpful, but it is, it is interesting. At what point do you listen to that feedback and think, well, people just, just don't get it and they're uncomfortable Mm. with it. So you kind of change. I don't know what the answer is. Mm, I'm sure we've just sent about 10,000 people into our Apple podcast reviews, which terrifies me as I I think about it. But that's that's the weird thing, right? That people actually think that we must hate each other and that you must hate me because you don't agree with me or you rib me or you make sarcastic comments when I say something. And I wonder if that's a generational divide that people can't imagine having a friendship with another woman where you just speak candidly and honestly with each other and you don't feel like you have to sugarcoat things. It's always been an expectation of women, I feel like, to make their points palatable. I think we've always had a relationship where we're brutally honest with each other but we also know that it's going to be fine, that you and I can say whatever we want and it doesn't matter. But for that to then be taken and construed as we either hate each other or we're catfighting or we don't get along or we're woman hating is annoying because for me to go through those reviews last night and read, oh, Zara hates Michelle, I'm like, you just don't get it. You mustn't have a relationship or a friendship like we have because – we're just honest. But then, I mean, the last thing I would ever want to be is kind of defensive about these things because I'm not, I mean, I'm not particularly defensive. I don't think I will change my behavior that much because I don't have that much of a filter with you because it's it's rooted in a lot of respect, which I think is important. But if people don't understand dynamics like that, is that not the responsibility of us to sort of make it a little bit more inclusive. I don't know what well, the answer is. Well, maybe this is the conversation that we're having now. So yeah. if you're listening and you're worried that Zara does hate me or I hate her or we don't get along, 
Trust me, we do. We no, just have always had a relationship even, where we debate. I don't even think it's our responsibility to say that because, to be honest, like I, I think that should be assumed. I don't think mm. we could work together this much or not. Mm. But, I mean, it is interesting. When we did, we did an interview a couple of days ago with the boys from the Daily Talk Show and we were having this discussion with them and they said to us that they, to, to bring it back to this kind of core idea of a cat fight, they have a very similar relationship with each other as we have with each other and not once have they ever been commented on that the fact that they have a conversation and they disagree um, or that they might not like each other, which I found very interesting just to talk to two other people in a similar industry who do a similar thing who sort of aren't looked upon in a similar way. Yeah, well, it's probably the expectation that people don't always expect Tommy and Josh to be palatable. That as women, especially as young women, people want us to be palatable and they want us to be polite above anything else, which of course there is always room for politeness, but I would argue that it's not the most important thing on a pop culture podcast to be polite to each other. It would also be boring. I don't want to dilute what we do. And I know that I'm being defensive of you because a lot of the comments recently have been about, sorry, about you. I don't think, well, clearly there's nothing that attractive about a sarcastic female. I honestly (laughs) think that's also what it is, that, that a sarcastic female is suddenly a bitch yeah and it's funny because we've commentated on this type of stuff for so long but now that we probably do have a slightly bigger platform we're becoming the ones that people are talking about but it's not just us and it's not just Megan and Kate and it's not just Megan and Priyanka before that it was Jen and Angelina and I'm sure we could go way back through history and find a pairing that it's always been throughout history there's it's that's what I find interesting and I think I started this segment by saying it's curious to me that we've had these discussions for decades and it feels like not one piece of progress has been made. Mm. We are still having the same conversations and I don't know what we need to do in order to enact change. Maybe it's the fact that we don't dilute this. Like maybe it is the fact that we have conversations that are rooted in sarcasm and banter and that people need to get used to that. Like maybe that's the response. I'm just a bit nervous doing that now. (laughs) I think even down to the minutiae of how we talk about women in the public eye, even comparing two friends like the who wore it better narrative particularly with Megan and Kate it's that idea and I'll again quote Yomi Adegoke from The Guardian by virtue of being a woman it is impossible to be discussed in the same breath if not to debate who is better dressed read better It would have been almost impossible to have missed the story this week AFL women's star Taylor Harris found herself the centre of a viral sporting storm after a photo of her kicking a ball was deleted from Channel 7's designated AFL social media feeds because of intense and misogynistic trolling. Since then, there has been an outpouring of anger and frustration settling around one core issue. How long is it going to take for women's sports stars to be taken seriously? Mish, how did you feel as this story unfolded very quickly, might I add, over the course of the week? Yeah, very, very quickly. So for some context, this was a photo taken by award-winning photographer Michael Wilson. It was a shot taken at the peak, the height Mm. of Taylor Harris's kicking motion and it was taken on last Sunday and then I guess removed from the website probably on Tuesday and that's when everything really blew up and this went viral. I missed the original misogynistic and transphobic comments on the photo so I can't comment too much about what was actually said that prompted Channel 7 to delete that photo and later repost it but from what I've heard a lot of it centered around pubic hair, a lot of it centered around Taylor Harris's body shape and uh, femininity which is disgusting and a lot of it sparked a conversation about legitimacy and women's sport and women's athletes and I think it 
won't be soon, unfortunately, that the men of Australia take women's sport on board and consider women's athletes as exactly that, athletes. You mean it won't be so – like people are going to have to get used to it? Yeah, I feel like we're so far away. Based on mm. the response, even after Channel 7 reposted the photo, I think the response was disheartening to me. As much as women were reposting this and some sports stars like Patrick Dangerfield were reposting this, the collective majority to me of sporting fans are still a bit puzzled as to why women were so upset about what went on. I agree with you. Even though I saw this photo all over my um, Instagram feed, I think I live in a kind of nice little bubble of an Instagram feed where um, the kinds of people I follow were going to be the ones that were going to repost this. What I found desperately sad was 21-year-old Harris said she felt like she had been sexually abused on social media, which I think is quite a telling quote to paint a picture of how um, abusive and violent and aggressive this commentary was. It's hard. I, I'm glad we're doing this segment today because I think when it comes to to women's sport, particularly the AFL women's in Australia, there's very much this balance, I think, for players wanting to call this stuff out and not wanting to rock the boat, having like for fear of having funding pulled or support pulled. I feel like the AFL women's feel like they're very much at the mercy of a sport that hasn't yet let them in. And if you haven't feel if you feel like you're not in yet, then I feel like you can't um, yell as loudly as you'd like to. Mm. So I think it's the responsibility of the rest of us to yell for them, I guess. Yeah, and even do something as simple as putting it on the television, going to a game, supporting the industry that is women's footy, because until that happens, the AFL men's side of things aren't going to take the league as seriously as they should or even play as many games as they should. Eight games for a season simply isn't enough. That's another conversation in its entirety. But what my overriding vibe is after this entire clusterfuck is that men still feel an ownership over the realm of sport and they simply cannot stomach the thought of women infiltrating it. This depiction of Taylor Harris kicking was so athletic, so impressive, so incredible that I cannot believe that men chose to make it sexual. And it really does make me think that a lot of men in Australia simply don't like the idea of women commentating on their panels hosting their shows or even getting in on the action and actually going out on a footy field. I agree because that is the overriding sense that I have, that nobody wants to open the gates, that these men don't want to open the gates to let these women in. It feels like they have they feel like they have ownership over this sport and this domain and actually cannot conceive that a woman or somebody who might look different to them or be different to them could be interested in the same things that they are. Mm. It reminds me of that quote from Lindy West, even when we were talking about Rahija Vase a couple of weeks ago, where she said, the world is bigger than you and it belongs to us too. That's the thing I can't get out of my mind when we're having this conversation is this, this might've been your sport for decades, but that doesn't mean that you own it. It just means that it's time for us to have our time too. Yeah. And it really does make me think that so many Australian men still struggle with the concept that a woman doesn't have to be weak, small, petite and quiet, that women can be tall and athletic and proud and loud. Wow, rhyming. And that's totally (laughs) fine and that's how it should be. It's like they want to minimise us and push us into spaces exactly like the last segment. They want us to sugarcoat things. They want us to feel at the tiniest amount of space possible. Like they don't want us to feel the space that they have seen as theirs. I do want to draw a parallel here because lots of people have already done that online. When this outrage came because of the vile and misogynistic trolling that Taylor Harris was at the mercy of, a lot of people drew a parallel between Dustin Martin receiving sexualized comments on his Instagram photos, which 
does not excuse that behavior. That is disgusting. If anyone's going onto Dustin Martin's photos and saying that they can almost or they want to see his penis through his shorts or comments like that, which there are plenty, I've seen lots of screenshots, of course that's abhorrent and that's not what we want. The difference, though, is that we already approach men's sport with an air of legitimacy. So Dustin Martin, first and foremost, is seen as an impressive athlete. He's not seen as something to have sex with. All of our conversations about men's sport come from a stance of seriousness and importance and legitimacy, and we do not afford the same right to women athletes like Taylor Harris, and that's the difference. So all of the op-eds online saying, oh, well, this is an interesting comparison. Why don't we talk more about sexualizing male athletes? Yes, let's talk about it. There is a space and a time and a place for those conversations. And I do not endorse people sexualizing Dustin Martin. I don't endorse them sexualizing any athlete who's just doing their job. But it's not the same because with women, we sexualize them first and then we talk about their talent second. I agree with that. This, I think the other commentary that's going around is that this is a double standard and people love to throw that word around. This is a double standard. It's not a double standard because when we're talking about double standards, we also have to talk about power. And in this scenario, Taylor Harris has no power. She is not known as the brilliant Australian footballer, as you said. People now know Taylor Harris as the woman who was trolled um, for being... For having her legs open. Well, for being what a lot of men on the internet deemed an object. Mm. Like she was first and foremost an object. Um, and that's how people treated her. And that is the difference. It is not the same thing, though you're absolutely right. It's not to say that the Dustin Martin commentary doesn't matter. It's just not the time for the conversation to be hijacked by that. One of the biggest issues for me, and I think one of the biggest players in this game who are not being held to account are the people who are running the AFL social media accounts. I am done with the people that are running these accounts. And then we're talking about the the seven AFL accounts who are posting these photos of these women and not protecting them in the comments. Yes, that's seven network. I would like to make a point that I think the AFL does a pretty good job itself of moderating its own pages. I think they are pretty good at that. It is channel seven that in my mind needs to step up, step up to the plate and actually be accountable for moderating these channels because and we deal with this with the Facebook group all the time we had a really big incident earlier this week which you had a lot of stress over Zara on our Married at First Sight Mm. thread where the tone and the comments taking place were not on in any way shape or form they weren't okay and if that's happening on other networks I know that major media networks yeah they're massive they're way bigger than what the shameless podcast community is but at the end of the day you have to be held accountable for the conversations that take place on your own platform and if you're letting misogynistic vile comments on your thread of a photo of a woman who is 21 years old you should be at least condemned for that and it's not just this photo like this has been going on for years this has been going on for years on photos of Hannah Mouncey of other female athletes and there are couple of things I can't stop thinking about. First and foremost, Channel 7 in having the rights to the AFL, which is a very expensive pursuit for them, but a very valuable one, very lucrative. have a responsibility to protect the players. They have a responsibility to do so. And the most cynical part of me, Michelle, and I know, I wonder where you'll sit on this. It's hard now when you have a Facebook page to cut through. It is very hard to cut through the algorithm and in order to to get engagement. It's not surprising to me that Channel 7 posts a photo of maybe a female player and it does gain engagement and it does gain traction, even if it's negative, that they don't then go and delete the comments because it's terrible for their position on the feed. And I don't think it's as deliberate as that, but I do think maybe they just see engagement figures and not commentary. I love that you jumped in to clarify because you thought I was going to disagree. I agree. 
Do I you? think any social media manager in their most pragmatic moment would think we cannot censor these threads too much because censorship equals a decline in engagement. Decline in engagement means a decline in overall success yeah. and KPIs of how my job is performing and how I'm performing in that position. So I agree with you. I think the comments in general from men, largely, almost 100% in my mind, from men about the AFLW need to be checked, even in social settings when they're offline, when you're sitting around a table with a bunch of guys and they're talking about the AFLW, I think it's really worth asking the question, when you hear a man or another woman questioning the standard of the AFLW league, I think a good parallel there to draw is, should we really be comparing a league that is in its infancy to one that has existed for over 120 years in the AFL? We cannot look at the AFL, which has been Mm. around for over a century, compare it to the AFLW, which has been around for a hot minute and expect the same standard. That is just flawed logic that I can't even be bothered to venture there, really. To me, that is is, speaks so much to how internalized um, misogyny exists in our world that we don't have the time to consider that context that we see the two television screens together and just laugh at one of them because we don't think it's good enough one of the biggest the other big issues that I have for me is the tone of the commentary and the fact that so many men wrap their commentary about women's sport as a joke it is a joke they are being ironic they aren't the problem they're pointing out the problem by making the joke we're just pointing to what other people are saying These jokes aren't funny anymore. Women don't need your jokes. They actually, in this setting, need your backing and your support. They need your earnest and legitimate backing. I tell you who's a great example of this. Is it Brandon Jack, who writes pretty prolifically for Fairfax now, what is now Channel 9, Mm. who is Kieran Jack's younger brother who Mm. used to play AFL. And he is a brilliant champion of women's sport in taking it seriously. No time for jokes. Let's just take this seriously. But I am tired of the men who want to tag their friends in threads and not add to the commentary, but say, ha ha, read the comments here. As if, look how absurd they are. I'm not taking part. I'm just pointing to you to read them. That shits me up the wall. Same with Titus O'Reilly. Titus O'Reilly is a great champion of women's sport and he's absolutely not here for any negative commentary around women's bodies, women's legitimacy out on the field. I really highly recommend following Titus O'Reilly, not just because he's a champion of women, because he's really fucking funny. What I do want to talk to you about to wrap this segment up is Hannah Mouncey because a very key thread throughout a lot of these comments from men is Hannah Mouncey. And for those who aren't familiar with that name, Hannah is a transgender player who was rejected from playing in the AFLW. She she had the argument that she should be able to play because she's transitioned into a woman. The AFLW and the AFL had different thoughts based on whether or not someone who was born a man should be able to play in a women's league. Now, no matter where you stand on whether you think Hannah should be allowed to play, which she wasn't in the end, surely we can all agree that the constant trolling of Hannah by men on the internet is disgusting and reprehensible. And it is frustrating to me that we can get so riled up over Taylor Harris, as we absolutely should, but nobody is there pointing to the consistent and prolific trolling of Hannah Mouncey that goes on underground every single day. And it is vile. I've used that word so many many times in this episode. But the number of times Hannah Mouncey's name comes up in conversations that have nothing to do with Hannah Mouncey on those stupid AFL threads. And I am the biggest AFL fan that you'll ever meet. I almost cried about Alex Rance doing his ACL earlier today in (laughs) the car. (laughs) I am the biggest supporter of the AFL. I fucking love the AFL. But... For Hannah Mouncey's name to consistently be dragged through the mud by men on the internet is disgusting. 
disgusting. I am so over it. I do not understand how we let these gross attitudes just fester and grow in these underground male communities. And just we don't care. They're on these threads. They're getting thousands of likes and comments and replies, and we don't care. No, and this this takes me right back to the responsibility of social media managers who are actually posting about football stuff. It It is really their responsibility to actually change the conversation because I don't think anybody realizes how much power is in those threads. The last thing that I wanted to touch on today is I do think that all of this is wrapped in a sense that, that women aren't taken seriously, especially in the context of AFL women's, because we assume it's just a phase. Conversation I had with a teacher not long ago is she was saying, yay, we can finally, the girls can finally play footy this year. And I said, how come not last year or the year before? And she said, we, we had to keep fighting for it because they assumed that women's footy was a phase and nobody was going to play it. And I think to me, this says a lot about how many men consider feminism, which is an avenue for women to get things that men have without actually wanting them in the first place, which is so misguided. Let me tell you that this shit's not a phase. Women want to play sport and they want to be given the space and the time to get good at it. We just have to be given that opportunity. Yeah. And one really uplifting message from the AFLW after this whole cluster fuck is that the photo of Taylor Harris, which has attracted so much abuse from trolls, is going to be used at the forefront of their marketing as soon as this week. Good. Hey, that's all we've got time for. It is. For anyone coming to our live shows this week, oh my God, I'm so nervous and so excited and we cannot wait to meet you guys. I cannot believe that it's this week that we're actually doing our Melbourne live show. It's going to be a massive week because we've got Thursday, Friday, and then we've got to record on the weekend and go to a wedding together. I know. It's going to be huge. We are mildly petrified, but we are very excited to do it and very excited too to have Shop Back on board as the official presenting partner. We have lots of surprises up our sleeve. I hate being a clickbaiter, but I feel like in order to get you guys excited for this I'm going to clickbait you there are surprises plural ew I hate you don't you agree though were you not gonna were you gonna like hype this up too no I'm very very excited I hope you guys love it as much as we've loved putting it all together and yeah we'll see you there if not if you're from another state please stay tuned I promise you we are going to get to other states as soon as we can when you see what's in store for 2019 you might have a better understanding of why it might take us a little bit to get to Sydney Brisbane Adelaide Perth yeah, we just also need space to breathe, but only a little bit of space. <laughs> we will see you on Thursday or Friday if you're coming to the show. And we do have a very special in conversation dropping on Thursday morning for you. So not too long to wait. Yes, if you are coming to those shows, drop into our Facebook group because we'll post details of how to get to those uh, live show event spaces on each night. So if you want public transport info and all that good stuff, jump into the group and we'll post everything you need then. See you guys on Thursday. Bye. Oh, hi. It's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, <laughs> each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.